Before it went public this week, Squarespace had been building its profile for years. Ads on subways and podcasts have touted its website design and hosting services. And it's been a hit with customers and investors. The company has raised almost a billion dollars from private investors. All of it was the perfect recipe for a big IPO. But Squarespace chose a different route, the direct listing. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback from Barron's. This season, we're winding back the clock and unraveling the stories of the companies behind the biggest and most fascinating IPOs to answer a key question. How do we put a price on innovation? Today on the show, direct listings have promised a better IPO. So why have they been so slow to catch on? By now, we've covered a lot of different angles of an IPO. The disclosures, the first day pops, the preparation, and the roadshows. But really, an IPO is defined by the O in the name, the offering in initial public offering. After all, IPOs are really about helping a company raise money. It's just that instead of getting cash from a venture capitalist, companies are raising funds by issuing new stock to public market investors. But a whole generation of unicorns raised billions of dollars while still private, so they never needed the cash. And that changed the whole equation around IPOs. It's part of the reason Uber and Lyft waited so long to go public, and Airbnb, and DoorDash, and Spotify. One of our original disruptors, Spotify, going public on the New York Stock Exchange today. The New York Stock Exchange set the reference. So let's go back to Spotify's first day of trading in early 2018. The Swedish audio streamer was founded in 2006 with the goal of combating music piracy that had characterized the early part of the decade. If Apple shook up the music industry by selling one song at a time, Spotify was the next big step, not selling music at all. And it seemed to be working. By 2018, Spotify had become the largest global music subscription service. And on April 3rd of that year, Spotify's shares began to trade for the first time. As with any hot IPO, everyone was eager to see where the stock would open. Would it have a huge pop or prove disappointing? Ultimately, we would never know. And that's because there was no IPO price. Actually, there was no IPO at all. Spotify had taken its existing stock, the shares that belonged to early startup investors and employees and founders, and basically said, here, investors, have at it. There was no new stock to sell. In other words, there was no offering. And no offering price. The New York Stock Exchange made its best guess about what Spotify shares were worth, the so-called reference price, and flipped a switch. Welcome back. We are all watching Spotify this morning as the world's largest music streaming service makes its unusual public debut at the New York Stock Exchange. Spotify is skipping the traditional IPO. The bankers that spend weeks putting together an offering document and talking to potential investors about new stock were largely cut out of the equation. The roadshow never left the garage. In the world of Wall Street, this was a big deal. The gatekeepers were being disintermediated, to use a favorite Silicon Valley buzzword. I think Spotify obviously broke convention on a lot of things early in its history and really was seen as pushing back against some of the larger forces in tech and the larger music industry. That's Avi Saltzman, who's covered Spotify for Barron's in recent years. 
Avi draws a clear line between Spotify's role as a music industry disruptor and its stock market debut. It had somewhat of a rebellious history that I think probably helped lead to Daniel Ek and the other executives being willing to take a little bit more of a risk on the listing of its stock. The non-IPO IPO was called a direct listing. We're thrilled to have you on this big day. It's not an IPO day, it's a direct listing day, which is a different thing. Not a particularly innovative name, but the idea shook up everything Wall Street knew about going public. So what was wrong with the IPO in the first place? It's all part of the story we've told in recent weeks. IPOs are great for Wall Street, and sometimes they're great for founders and employees and investors who get in on the ground floor. But as we've learned from WeWork, Uber, and Casper, the IPO market can be fickle. And for all the experts giving advice, nobody can time the market. Plus, all those fees to bankers and lawyers really add up. But for much of Wall Street's history, it was a necessary evil. The IPO is an event that shapes narrative of a company. That's Albert Wenger, a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, who we heard from last week. He's been part of the IPO process many times as a venture capitalist. You know, I'll give you one example without sort of naming names, but one of our portfolio companies during one of the banker meetings, the banker said, well, you have to, in your, you know, prospectus and on your roadshow and so forth, you have to project higher margins in the future. And I sort of said, why? And the banker said, because the market expects it. And I said, well, that's just completely backwards. Once you've said it, the market will expect it because you've said it. Doing the same thing over and over, simply because it's how it's always been done, usually leads to problems. And eventually, it pushes people to go outside the system. Thus, the direct listing. The IPO was still a primary funding event, meaning the bulk of the shares that were being sold tended to be shares from the company putting money into the bank account of the company. But remember, in recent years, more and more of those cash flush unicorns didn't need the money. You know, in a traditional IPO, you have bankers that are very involved in the process. The banks set the price for the IPO the night before it goes public. That's Louisa Beltran. She covers IPOs for Barron's. You know, there's a syndicate, which is like a group of investors who buy the shares. And then, you know, they sell the shares the next day. And so what happens in a direct listing is that doesn't happen at all. Basically, shareholders of a company, they register to sell their shares. And then once the company opens for trading, like say on the New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ, they set the price for the direct listing. And then, you know, the shareholders sell their shares. And so the banks aren't really involved in that. Although they are involved in, there's like one bank or two banks that help the intermediaries set the price. But, you know, it's cheaper. One thing it's not is exciting. In an industry filled with numbers, we love to measure stuff. And there's just no easy way to measure a direct listing success because there's no IPO price to serve as a starting point. Typically with an IPO, you have like a a pop on the first day. And, you know, there's a lot of fanfare. The big story in IPOs is how much did it pop that first day? And in a direct listing, you typically don't have that. The first day move is muddied. So on day one, you can't really declare success or failure. And that's kind of the idea. 
A direct listing takes the excitement out of things, but it takes a private company and makes it public. It's kind of the minivan of IPOs. It's not flashy, but it gets the job done. As someone who covers IPOs and has covered IPOs, is it less interesting or less exciting than to cover this kind of direct listing? It's certainly different. And yeah, I'm going to say it's less exciting because yeah, it's, a, it's not the best story for me, but for investors, I think it's a better deal. Yes, the investors. The IPO, after all, isn't just a media event. It's about people making money. It is a pretty entrenched interest, the IPO world, right? I mean, basically, Wall Street has a strong incentive to take companies public in the traditional way. Yeah, I, I think that it's a, it's a very nice virtuous circle for Wall Street most of the time where they get to reward their best clients. They get to build relationships and get large fees from new companies. And those companies can be cash cows long into the future as they raise more debt and equity and go back to their favored bankers. So it's, it's a nice entree for Wall Street to start building relationships with companies and make very large fees right off the bat. But the direct listing levels the playing field. There's less of the backroom deal-making that goes on, and Wall Street can't allocate new shares to its preferred clients. Basically, in a direct listing, anyone can buy the stock, for better or worse. I think there is the, this sort of marketing aspect of it that this is, you know, not the Wall Street way. So it's an easier way to cash out if you're VC-funded. IPO process is the lockup, and then everyone's kind of looking at whether you sell as a bearish sign and this kind of takes that away like it it kind of provides cover to the early investors too in a traditional ipo insiders like employees and early investors agree not to sell shares for a six-month period that lockup helps to limit volatility around the newly issued stock because it prevents those folks from dumping their shares theoretically the lockup keeps ipo prices inflated since fewer people can sell but in a direct listing, no such rule applies. And that means no one is putting artificial limits around supply and demand. Therefore, a more fair price from day one. That's the idea, at least. It's an idea that naturally appeals to companies that have already made their living thinking in disruptive ways, starting with Spotify, and followed by Slack. As we've been reporting, it will be a direct listing. So Palantir. They're just sort of different, Palantir. They don't kind of like have the same typical corporate 2020 Silicon Valley ethos. And most recently, Coinbase. Coinbase announcing plans to go public via direct listing today. The cryptocurrency exchange also announced... It's no coincidence these highly disruptive companies were seeking new methods for taking their companies public. They had succeeded by using technology to broaden their customer base. Now they hope to do the same with their stock by going direct to investors. I think for both uh, places like Spotify and Coinbase, you know, their customer base is younger. And at a time when, particularly now, retail trading has been rising, you can really ride that new interest from Gen Z and millennials and brokerages that are catering to them to really get a nice price in your direct listing, as opposed to going to, say, a bank whose best client might be 65 years old and may not have the same excitement about crypto or streaming music, uh, as opposed to, say, a 24-year-old who's on Spotify six hours a day and maybe trading cryptocurrencies directly. For Coinbase, a platform for crypto investors, a direct listing was right on brand. Crypto obviously has been 
portrayed as a way around the traditional gatekeepers of finance. And Coinbase, you know, was able to really also ride a tremendous wave of retail interest in cryptocurrencies. The traditional IPO roadshow, where bankers appeal to institutional investors, was replaced by a YouTube presentation. In the video, Coinbase made its case directly to the investing public. Good. Good morning. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us on Coinbase's uh, big public listing day. Uh, it's great to uh, have, have you all with us. Everything is on YouTube now. Why shouldn't the IPO process be there, too? I thought that was effective, but, you know, the head of some pension in California may not have tuned into that YouTube, you know, that could be a real issue. You know, some of these people who really control big money are not going to necessarily access information in the way that the newest generation will. They may want someone to sit down with them and say, hey, I really want you to buy my shares and here are four reasons why. And if you don't do that, you actually miss a part of the market. Going around Wall Street has its risks. Once Coinbase was public, it didn't have the usual support that comes with an IPO. Remember when Facebook's bankers stepped in to help its stock during its troubled first day of trading? That safety net hasn't been there for Coinbase. Its stock has fallen significantly in the last few weeks. One problem for Coinbase was that, at least according to analysts, was that because it didn't have a roadshow, it got that initial enthusiasm But it hadn't really made the case to Wall Street. I think that the company didn't sit in front of analysts and say, like, this is why the bear case is wrong. And some analysts think that the bear case actually took hold a little more aggressively. And maybe some of the big investors either shunned the shares because they now are hearing the bear case more forcefully and didn't get to hear directly from Coinbase with the same kind of roadshow. So that stock actually has slumped. It had a nice first day. But since then, it's mostly been down. So that's one of the potential negatives is that even if retail traders are hot on your stock, retail traders are still about 25% of the market. And that's, you know, that's still very high historically, but you're missing 75% of the market. You know, obviously, a lot of big banks got into the Coinbase listing too. But if you didn't really pitch to the pensions and the institutions, you may have missed out on some buyers. And for now, the IPO establishment might still be winning out. Squarespace is just the third company to hold a direct listing this year. Over the same period, there have been 148 traditional IPOs and another 321 special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. Direct listings remain a niche movement. Maybe it's the fact that most companies going public still want to raise money, something you haven't been able to do with a direct listing. But even that's now changing. The New York Stock Exchange last year changed their rules, and it was approved by the SEC, and they're allowing companies to raise money to do a capital raise with a direct listing. It would seem like the best of all worlds. The transparency, low costs, and open-to-all nature of a direct listing, with the ability to seed a young company with fresh cash. You'd think there'd be a rush of direct listings. So far, nobody has done it or tried to raise fresh capital with their direct listing. So what's holding everyone back? Well, I'm going to be very honest. I'm surprised that more companies aren't doing them. It does seem like it should be a moment for people to try a direct listing, but I think it's still just so new. It may just be early days for direct listings. 
change takes time, and then it happens all at once. We'll be watching. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadbackatbarons.com. Thanks to Avi Saltzman, Louisa Beltran, and Albert Winger. For more coverage on direct listings, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Yule. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoff and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Next week on the show, the final episode of our IPO season. We'll be back next week.